Anton, here with my co-host Shelby. We're here to discuss a variety of topics from across the sustainability universe. Shelby, what's up? I'm doing well. I think you're looking like a beach boy today with your a little outfit. Bit. I like this. I like this top. I'm trying to uh, manifest summer, I guess. Yeah, uh, whereas I'm over here in my sweater, but it was thrifted, <laughs> so that's a good thing. <laughs> I mean, that Texas climate probably's got you all messed up. You're not, you're not acclimated for Ohio. That's true. It's been almost two years, but five years <laughs> must have really threw me off. But it is. It's getting warmer here. I've been enjoying some time yeah. outside. How about you? Yeah, absolutely. Been doing some birding. Uh, what else have I doing? A little bit of gardening. Yeah. Okay, great. And we heard we heard on Tuesday about your your um, stinky stinky tree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was your neighbors. I don't want to blame you for having that. It tree wasn't mine. I would I would cut it down if I saw it in my yard. Yeah. Well, and I'm tempted to cut down my neighbors too, but. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't have any of my own personal trees because I live in an apartment, but I do live yeah. really close to the national park, so I've been going on a lot of walks, taking my binoculars, trying to. Uh, Take a page out of your book and do a little bit of birding myself. Nice. I did see a tiny little screech owl up in its little burrow recently. And That's that awesome. Good. Yeah, I was actually sitting at a coffee shop the other day and I heard a ruby crowned kinglet. It's like a really tiny bird with like a blazing red mohawk. It's like kind of a funny looking bird, but it's really cute. I can't wait to be able to know <laughs> birds by their sounds enough to do what you just did. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of a fun superpower. It's kind of useless, but a fun, yeah. I can't wait to learn more from it. <laughs> Thanks, I'm looking forward to that too. So, Shelby, have you been reading any good books lately? Um, always, uh, and probably too many. I think I'll just stick with one right now, which sure. at least to tell you about, which is Food Politics by Marian Nessel. Mm -hmm. um, we talked about food in our last episode, yeah. how we choose to eat, methane emissions, all that jazz. Um, so this book is almost 20 years old, although this is an updated copy, and I got to see the writer, Marian Nessel. She's a, a public health nutritionist, um, mm -hmm. and she teaches at NYU, and she spoke at World Food Day last year, and she talked all about the different ways that uh, lobbyists and uh, you know, big dairy, big yeah. meats, like all of these big industry groups impact the way that we advise people to eat food. It's just, mm. it's been interesting to be reading that alongside the conversation we had last week, both the conversation about how we eat and then also conversations about like the showing both sides of an argument. We talked about that in relation to yes. climate change, and she's essentially talking about that here. So that's been a great yeah. part of, sort of crossover between my environmental and food interests this week. I definitely need to put that on the list, but I wanted to get into our first article. Yeah. Uh, we're talking a lot about development, mm -hmm. on development with a fun last segment, uh, but I wanted, to far, for, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to first start off with uh, the zombie that is single-family zoning. So, do you know about single-family homes? Are you looking at homes? Do you know about uh, uh, homes? <laughs> I'm learning a lot more than I ever wanted to because I'm trying to buy my own home right now. Um, my understanding of single-family homes comes more from an environmental justice and yeah. public health background in the sense of single-family zoning, keeping folks who maybe would be able to find housing more attainable if it yeah. were multifamily. Yes. Um, that's my background with it. But tell me tell me more about how you're approaching this. Yeah, yeah. So I'm kind of approaching this from like a sustainability aspect. I think people should live in the homes that exist today. Um, obviously, homes can last many decades. I live in a 1944 brick house. Mm -hmm. um, the continuation of building more housing developments, though, it's a little bit unsustainable. Not only are we creating a lot of um, 
fossil fuels with the production of you know wood we're cutting down trees we're we're doing all these things we're also destroying wetlands we're destroying ecosystems uh, just so people can live in a brand new McMansion type home and there's nothing inherently wrong with living in a nice home or having nice things mm -hmm. but the experts are also telling us that we need to think about the way that we use land municipalities have to take into account the way that they the way that cities plan developments the way that people are living in spaces I guess yeah it sounds like what you're saying is the idea that sure if there are single-family homes that already exist the greenest thing we can do is use those homes but also when we're making new things like making them mixed use or making it be able to house more people with fewer resources like mm -hmm. less land or fewer um, like construction resources is that what I'm hearing that's exactly what I'm saying yeah like I said there's nothing wrong with having nice things I wanted to I wanted to tell you a little bit about some of the drawbacks of building brand new housing developments. Yeah, tell me all about it because I feel like all I'm hearing is just, oh, the housing stock is so low and competition's so high, and I feel that when yeah. I'm trying to purchase homes because yeah. people are coming in with cash bids yeah. that are over asking price and making it really hard to purchase. But then I look around and see that we we live here in Cleveland or in Northeast Ohio where yeah. we've had a loss of population in many ways. So how do we square those things? I mean, what's your perspective on that and how that goes back to this environmental uh, yeah, lens on it? Absolutely. I think we should take more of a lead on countries that have done a great job at some denser living spaces. And this could still look like cluster homes. Like if you're going to build single family living, you can build houses that are maybe closer together and still have a large backyard with like a preservation area yeah. um, behind the development instead of clear cutting a bunch of trees and trying to cram in as many homes as you possibly can on that plot of land uh, you're increasing impervious surface which for people who aren't in the stormwater lingo that's just <laughs> like anything anything water touches that it doesn't penetrate through so dirt that is pervious concrete impervious a roof, also impervious, right? So you're going to have a lot of runoff into uh, waterways that kind of overwhelms, um, erodes some of our waterways, but also takes a toll on our 100-year-old infrastructure in Cleveland. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, when I lived in South Korea after college, people really did live, or at least more people that I saw in my limited time there, more people lived in apartments or multifamily yeah. units. Um, even people who were very successful and made plenty of money, it was just... Korea is really mountainous. It's a it's a country that's about the size of Indiana, mm. um, but about seventy percent of it is covered in mountainous terrain. So wow. there's only a little bit of land that you can really build on. And so yeah, you definitely build up. And it seems like the U.S. has a lot of land, and so we tend to build out. But then what happens to that land that maybe could be used for I don't know agriculture or just like left the way it is yeah, or like I enjoyed mean... as a park. I mean, one of the biggest reasons why we're losing so many different species is because they lack habitat connectivity. So when we're just going in and clear-cutting parcels of land, we're, we're going to start losing more species. We, we've lost the, uh, the bob white, uh, the northern bob white, one of my favorite birds. It, it kind of runs around on the ground. It's not extinct yet, but it's definitely not in northeast Ohio anymore. I see. So. Well. Rest in peace somewhere that's not out yeah, here. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have to go all the way to like Dayton to see one, so. Oh, I gotcha. It's affecting my birding show. I know, this is really personal. <laughs> I mean, I, we're joking, but it is personal in the yeah. sense of like, 
when we're building out without thinking about who's going to be able to access it, it, it becomes an issue both yeah. in terms of like the land that we're using, but also in terms of who yeah. is able to buy there um, and whether housing is affordable for people. Yeah. So it's like anything kind of multi-layered and intersectional. Yeah, 100%. And I want to just throw a couple more things at you before yeah. we wrap this up. Uh, one of the one of the rules in Ohio is when a developer is building on a wetland, they don't actually have to protect. They don't have to actually uh, restore wetlands elsewhere. So if you're losing that wetland, it's not a rule that you have to build new wetlands. I think it should be the rule, but one of the loopholes is you can actually just protect, pay to protect another wetland that currently exists. Um. So that's still that's still in that loss of wetlands. Yes, you're. You're paying to protect a wetland, but you had two wetlands before, now you're just down to one wetland. Does that make sense? Yeah, it reminds me of the whole carbon offsetting thing, yeah. where it's like, oh, you're on a plane, but we purchased carbon offsetting by protecting this yeah. thing that was already a state park. So yeah. really, it's all the same. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of um, ding, 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 greenwashing Yeah, greenwashing alert. <laughs> <laughs> greenwashing alert. <laughs> yeah. So, and also on top of that, the infrastructure that is created, those gas lines, water lines, sewer lines, electricity, roads, that's all things that need to be kept up with in the long term. So cities are actually kind of digging themselves into an unsustainable hole by having to take care of all this infrastructure in the long term. A lot of municipalities, they're tempted to increase their tax base by building these housing developments. In the long term though, it's really not sustainable. And we know that by the studies done by urban urban uh, studies professionals. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Well, you'll be happy to know that most of the houses I'm looking at are very old homes. I think they have <laughs> a lot of character and charm. I think that's the best uh, part. Yeah, I mean, aside from the environmental impact, but uh, yeah, I'd like to live in an older home. And yeah. now, knowing that you have an older home, maybe you can help me manage all of the quirks that come yeah, with that too there's when plenty. it finally happens. Yeah. yeah, we're kind of going on a theme here. Yeah. So we went from talking about where people live in terms of the actual building that they live in. Now I want to talk about where people live in terms of geographically where in the world do they oh, live. Oh yeah, that sounds great. This was sparked by two different resources, or sources I should say, that came out um, in the last week-ish. So one was from a, po a podcast from the New Republic called The Politics of Everything, mm -hmm. where they were talking about climate-proof cities. Mm -hmm. And then my partner is a die-hard reader of The Economist, and as I was oh. telling him about doing this story on climate-proof cities, he was like, well, I'm reading this thing that's about... Uh, how we're hitting like record highs in India and Pakistan and other places in Southeast mm. Asia. So I've kind of squished those together to talk yeah. about the impact, um, disparate impact of climate change and global warming on different communities and what it might be doing to our migration patterns. Um, so have you heard that term climate proof city before? I've never heard about that, to be honest with you. Yeah, when it's, I mean, to be fair, it's a little bit made up, but the idea of a climate-proof city is that they're climate havens or destinations. Um, they're in places that avoid the worst of the effects of natural disasters, so things like flooding, forest fires, tornadoes, um, and they would be able to hold a larger population. Uh, so most of the cities that are considered climate-proof are in uh, the Midwest and the Northeast. Um, Ohio cities are on that list um, because of our access to fresh water. Weirdly, Orlando, Florida also made the cut, but that was more about... Really? I know, shocking, right? I don't think of Florida as like 
a place that's super climate proof. But no. they were considering it that way because the city itself is taking all of these steps to sort of greenify. That's good. Um, <laughs> but specifically, I want to talk about Duluth, Minnesota. Ever been? Um, actually, yes. I drove through there to, yeah. on a birding trip to see the great, great owls in Zaxxon Bog. Wow. How, how was your experience <laughs> in Duluth? I mean, it wasn't all that, I don't know. Never mind. It was great. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> well, it's certainly not a place. I don't think we want to. We want to sit here and talk badly about Duluth. No, I've never been there, not. and you clearly <laughs> got to see some great birds. But it's not exactly a place that you hear people talking about wanting to go on vacation. It's not Miami, New York, Las right. Vegas. Yeah. But people are kind of moving there because it was named as one of these this, these climate-proof cities. It's a place that's already really really cold, and so yeah. when the world gets hotter. It's not going to be somewhere like where I lived in Austin, Texas, where when it gets hotter, it's yeah. already unbearable, and it just gets worse. It means you're going to have a lovely summer, yeah. and maybe a slightly less dramatic winter than people in Duluth are used to. Um, and a journalist from the New Republic went and talked to people who had recently moved to Duluth and asked them, why did you do this? And a lot of them said it was because of climate change. They wanted no to move. To, have, have you ever even thought about this? I mean... You're from Northeast Ohio, which is already kind of a climate haven, but is it something that's come up for you before? It's come up. I've, I've heard about that. I'm just so surprised that people would move to a smallish town like Duluth, Minnesota, just to escape climate change. I mean, it must it must really feel real to them, especially maybe people in the South who have really hot summers. Oh, yeah. I can tell you that I definitely thought about it. I mean, I was excited to move to the North when I, when I left Texas. Yeah. It's been interesting to see the cities that are embracing it versus the ones that aren't. Duluth is considered a very friendly place, Minnesota nice. Um, yeah. So they're not exactly trying to keep people out, but they're not actively talking about, oh, move here. Whereas like Buffalo, New York is. Oh, They are okay. using their place on the climate proof cities list to say, come on out. I mean, we've got a shrinking population. That's and really smart. I mean, I kind of see that a little bit with Cuyahoga County, our new county executive here yeah. in the Cleveland area. Uh, he seems to really want to be the green city on the Green Lake. Great. Green city on a blue lake. Green city on a blue lake. <laughs> yeah. A great blue lake. A great, great lake that's blue. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, so Cleveland could totally apply for this. Uh, we definitely have access to a lot of natural resources. It's a place that's naturally relatively cold, although this last winter, I have to say, was pretty warm. Um, yeah. But let's talk about kind of the flip side of this. So we've already referenced Texas as a place I've lived that was too hot for me. Um, but that's really not the place that's experiencing the worst of it. Um, I want to talk about about what I read in The Economist. Mm. Um, first, do you know what I'm talking about when I mention a wet bulb measurement or a wet bulb temperature? No, I don't. This will be key to understanding this story. So okay. when we talk about a wet bulb measurement, it's the temperature plus the humidity. So essentially thinking about the fact that you know, people say Arizona's dry heat, New Mexico yeah, is dry heat. Yeah, I understand that, yeah. That's a real thing. Humidity yeah. makes it feel worse. Yes. And so when you hit, the human body sits at around 37 degrees Celsius. Apologies mm. that all of these are in Celsius. The Economist is a British publication. Ah. <laughs> the human body sits at around 37 degrees Celsius. So when you have these wet bulb measurements of temperatures that are starting to approach the level of the human body, essentially because there's so much humidity in the air and it's so hot, our body's natural protection against heat is to sweat. Right, right. 
the reason it cools us off is that that sweat then evaporates into the air uh -huh. and it leaves behind this sensation of cooling. Okay, I think I understand where this is going. When it's that humid and that hot, as you sweat, it has nowhere to go. Yeah. And so it becomes really dangerous. So I want to talk about the impact of that on mm. cities that are exactly the opposite of climate proof. Um, so it's considered to be uh, uh, potentially fatal if you're at a wet bulb temperature of over 35 degrees Celsius. Remember, our yeah. bodies are 37, so that's just when it approaches. A city in Pakistan peaked at 51 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. 51 That's degrees Celsius. Much higher than 35. Much higher than 35. When we put that in context, it's 123 degrees Fahrenheit yeah. for that wet bulb measurement. And in South Asia, we saw 110,000 heat related excess deaths oh. between 2000 and 2019. In the country of India, over 75% of people work in the heat, and those jobs that are working in the heat contribute to over 50% of India's gross domestic product. So when we think about the sort of flip side of these great climate-proof cities, places people want to live because they're cool, because you're not dealing with these excess heat, it's also like a real issue in places that are hot. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, my experience in Texas was that it was just unpleasant to be outside, and I worked in an office. I didn't wow. spend any time in the South or places that are quite hot like that. I've been to, like, Oklahoma and maybe, like, just in, in the northern part of Texas, but never so far south that mm -hmm. maybe it was unbearable. Yeah. Do you ever work outside for your job or anything like that? Um, I do some stuff in the field, some testing of harmful chemicals. Sure. Um, but I'm also a homeowner, so I definitely know what it's like to do some manual labor outside. Yeah. Maybe not for eight hours a day, though. And just imagine <laughs> doing that, but it's 123 degrees yeah, outside. Yeah, I, could, I couldn't. I would probably just sit and wallow in my air conditioning playing video games. Yes. <laughs> so I think this brings up for me the idea that people want to live in places that are going to be uh, resilient to climate change but not everybody has access to be able to pick up and move to Duluth. So yeah. if you are a laborer who's working outside in India, I'm sure you probably would like to live somewhere that's cooler or at least not have to labor outside like that yeah. when it's that hot. It's potentially dangerous for you. It's a danger for their economy, um, yeah. but you can't really just pick up and move in the same way. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. That's scary stuff. It's scary stuff, but I, I think we have sort of a fun story to end on. We've talked about where people live in their homes, where people live in the world, and that impact or experience in the context of climate change. But uh, let's talk about something more fun. Yeah. So this actually came from one of our producers, mm -hmm. Nick. Uh, he brought up that there's a video game that uh, actually is talking about the reverse of SimCity. Instead of building a city, you are rewilding an area uh, mm -hmm. that was maybe once contaminated. Uh, so I know that we both got a chance to play through the first level, if you will. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was curious what your thoughts were. Well, the game is called Terra Nil. At least, I think that's how I'm supposed to pronounce it. I say so. And I thought it was so fun. It's sort <laughs> of like a relaxing puzzle-style game. Yeah, it's a little puzzly. Yeah, I've never played SimCity. Yeah. Um, I remember playing, like... Roller Coaster Tycoon or Lemonade Stand yep. Tycoon when I was in school. I didn't know they had a Lemonade Stand Tycoon. Oh yeah, you wanted to build up that Lemonade Stand. <laughs> so to me this felt really similar in that your goal was like 
to build something up, but yeah. instead of building up a built environment, we were rebuilding a natural environment. Yeah. And I loved that. I loved, A, that there was enough demand in the world for someone to be able to put this out and yeah. have, like, 4.5 stars out of 5 on all of their reviews. And also, it was just really pleasant to say, oh, okay, well, my next task is going to be making sure that there are pollinators in this world. I loved that. Yeah, I love that. Once you've uh, restored the land to a workable state where plants can grow, I love that you can even start looking for fauna that have relocated to your area because you've restored it to its natural beauty. Yes, I found <laughs> frogs, and I found ducks, and I found deer. Yes. They did a great job animating those so that I could, you can zoom in yeah. and sort of see how cute they are. But it, it sounded like it was really, I'm not an expert, but it sounded like it was really based on some methods that are, are used yeah. in the real world. You yeah. had to think about having an energy source, and then you had to think about cleaning up after yourself. So if you yes. put up a wind turbine in this fake world so that you could then power the materials you needed to do um, the prep work on the land. Yeah. Then you also had to have like a little guy come by and recycle that wind turbine <laughs> yeah. once the land was rewilded. Yeah, exactly. I thought it was really fun after completing the first level. It was like you could just watch your, your land. There was like a continue button or an appreciate button. Yes! And I was like, yeah, I'll just take a minute to appreciate all the hard work I did on this world. So I, I liked the framing <laughs> of that. It made, yeah. it made you feel guilty. It was like a nudge um, to say, yeah, you should step back and appreciate yeah. this. <laughs> I, I felt like the next button should have said, like, no, just go outside. Yeah, right, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, I thought that was a really fun game. I'm looking forward to getting our Twitch stream up and running so we can game more often. I don't know about that, but I was <laughs> but we'll pushing for it. We'll certainly share the link to it. I downloaded mine on Steam on yeah. PC, and it was a really enjoyable, really enjoyable game to play. Yeah. Thank you, Shelby, for talking with me about all things green. Could you let our viewers know how they can stay in touch with us? Of course. If you'd like to stay connected to us, please be sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at One Planet Media. That's O-N-E-1. And if you'd like to re-watch full episodes, check out our YouTube channel, OnePlanetMedia.com. You can find all of our sources from today's episode in our show notes, which will be also posted on our website, OnePlanetMedia.com. We'll be back at the same time next week to bring you more news. Thank you for being a part of the global sustainability movement. Thank you.